If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. I marvel at all the people we met while driving the Green Book who shared with us their experiences of living in segregation. From these vivid and haunting stories, the voices of the elders emerged most powerfully. They are the people who lived through these challenging times, who recalled incidents in ways that took me back to the place and inside the emotions they felt. I wonder, how did they know what to do in the moment to keep safe? Where did they learn how to navigate situations that could be humiliating, frightening, or threatening? And what were the sources of their resolve to move forward? These voices created something I call story maps. Story maps retrace the physical landscape, political lines, and the emotional terrain of living through a fraught period in history. In these interviews, you'll hear the courage, the persistence, the optimism, and the forgiveness that was necessary to forge ahead. This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcasts, and I'm Alvin Hall. As you listen to the stories my producer, Janae Woods-Weber, and I share with you today, I want you to follow the story maps and learn from them. I think the takeaway will be different for every individual. But at the core of these stories is America and how black people have had to and still continue to negotiate everyday life here in so many ways. Over time, we carved out our own connection to the American dream when others, including our own government, were resistant to us doing so. And we continue this struggle today. When I was in the seventh grade, uh, and that was 1955, they'd had the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education uh, case. And so my mother worked for this uh, white man who owned thousands of acres. But whenever they finished reading magazines and newspapers, they would give them to her to bring home, not for us to read, but to use as toilet paper. But I love to read, so I'd read whatever she brings home. And uh, every Friday, our teachers would ask us to stand up and say what we were going to be when we grow up. And they did it on Friday because they wanted it freshening our mind over the weekend so we didn't go too far astray by Monday. And so after I read about uh, Third Good Marshall, I couldn't wait for next time comes so I could tell them I wanted to be a lawyer when I grow up. And I stood up and said, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. And the whole class just went silent, dead. I mean, completely dead. Then the boy next to me started. 
That's Hank Sanders, the first African-American to be elected to the Alabama Senate since Reconstruction. He was elected in 1983 and went on to serve for nearly 40 years. He's now 77. Janae and I met him at his office in an apartment building he owns in the heart of Selma, Alabama. My own circumstances as a black child in the Florida panhandle were similar to his. But while we were both poor, we did not lack for imagination. Senator Sanders and I were both inspired to see our futures in the stories about accomplished black people we read in books, newspapers, and magazines. Our minds were secret safe places to hold these dreams for ourselves. But there were consequences for trying to speak them into existence. Then the boy next to me starts niggling on his breath. And then another boy starts niggling, but it wasn't on his breath. And after a while, the whole class was just laughing. And so I started crying. But the more I cried, the more they laughed. And the teacher tried to get them to stop laughing. And she couldn't. So then she told me to sit down. And I was in such shock because it caught me so off guard until I couldn't, I couldn't sit down. So she came over put a left hand around my shoulder, put a right hand in my stomach and got me to sit down. And so when I sat down, the first thing I said, well, I ain't going to be nothing if they going to uh, laugh at me. And I, then I thought about it. They don't think I'm going to be nothing anyway. That's why they laughing. So I decided I was going to be a lawyer. If it's the last thing I did, if it killed me, I was going to be a lawyer. And uh, I made a second decision. And the second decision was that, um, that I wasn't going to tell anybody else I wanted to be a lawyer. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> Imagine how much determination Senator Sanders had to have to become a lawyer no matter what. I know this well because when I was nine years old, I told my mother that I was going to leave home and go to college no matter what. Because we had no money, my mother asked me, How are you going to do that? Who's going to pay for it? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. Like the young Senator Sanders, hurt by his classmates laughing, I did not let my mother's doubt deter me. I just believed I could do this. And so did he. So so I went through high school, and many times I thought about dropping out. <laughs> And each time I thought about dropping out, I, I, I would feel that pain all over again. And I would take it and do something. I can't describe what it is, but I, I would take it and run it through me. And it would always strengthen me and push me on. So I was out of high school three years before I went to college. And I had all kinds of jobs in between. But it took me years to understand fully why they laugh. Um, because first, I, I thought that they were laughing because I had a stutter, you know, and lawyers supposed to be good talkers. And so then I said, no, I've been stuttering all the while, and they didn't laugh. Over time, Senator Sanders began to understand what was really making his classmates laugh. Slowly, he started to realize that their reaction went beyond his stutter and his family's circumstances. I thought it was because we lived in that three-room house, uh, all of us. And, and then said, no, I, I thought it might be because sometimes we'd run out of food uh, on a Wednesday. 
And all my mother had to give us was uh, grits. No, no butter, no meat grease, no eggs, no nothing. So I, I kept thinking of all of that. And it was years before I understood that they were laughing because not only could they not see me as a lawyer, they couldn't see anybody in that room as a lawyer because no, none of us had ever seen a lawyer, not to speak of a black lawyer. Clearly, the humiliation Senator Sanders felt in that moment never really left him. But he transformed that feeling into three powerful words. Yes, I will. And he did. I can't help but wonder, where did his perseverance come from? My mother, uh, sometimes in that three-room house, uh, when things got real bad, my mother would make us all come to the front room of that three-room house. She sat in the only chair. We only had one chair. She would sit in that chair. And she would uh, make us sit on the floor in front of us. And, and she would say, children, things are always kind of bad with this big, poor family. And she said, but they are real bad now. And then she'd just go silent for a moment, making us focus in on her. And then she'd say, but don't y'all worry. I'm at my best when things get bad. And it was uh, such a powerful moment. It, it always, uh, even thinking about it, makes me, makes me cry. And she was at her best. And I like to think that, that I have a little of that and her other children have a little of that. And so when things get bad, we try to be at our best. What is your mother's name? Ola Mae Sanders. Ola Mae Sanders. And my father is Sam Sanders. Sam Sanders. Thank and you they so were much. both strong in their own way. My mother had a peculiar confidence in her children. Uh, she did. Um, my mother was a fighter. She, she, she really was. She was a, an extraordinary woman. My father was extraordinary. But my mother had the gift of words. My, my father had the gift of example. <laughs> As we were driving the Green Book, we heard other story maps about mothers like Ola Mae Sanders again and again and again. And each time they filled my heart with such pride and such warmth that I often struggled not to cry. How much protective love did these mothers and fathers show their children through unimaginable circumstances? It was a love drawn from a deep, deep well of devotion, hard work, and sacrifice, all in the service of lifting each child up beyond the circumstances into which they were born. Joyce Coleman, who is in her 70s, is a longtime resident and activist in Cincinnati. We met her and her lifelong friend, Carl Westmoreland, who is in his 80s, at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. The center offers public programming and educational resources based on the stories of the fight against slavery to further the fight for freedom today. 
Joyce reminisced about her childhood and her amazing mother. When you were a child, did you ever go back to the South with your parents to visit yeah. the place where you were born? Yes. What were the trips like, and did you use the Green Book when you went back? We didn't. We couldn't afford the Green Book. I'll, I'll give you my—my my father was killed when I was three years old. My younger brother was one month old the day that we had his funeral. So my mother raised three children. When we got a car in the 50s, I guess it was—I was in grade school, 54, I guess, when we got a car. And we rode in the car. Would you stop along the way, or well, would you drive straight through? We drove until we had to get gas. Or, But see, the rule was, we're going to leave at 3 o'clock. You be sure you go to the bathroom. You be sure that you got, and we had a bottle. We didn't have these nice thermoses now. We had a little bottle. We carried our water in. We made sure that the car had gas, that the tires had air, and they were good tires. And we'd leave at whatever time the designated time was. We'd stop along the road because my mother was driving, and here we were, a baby, and then we had three, six. That was our ages. We were three years apart. We'd stop along the road, and Mom would take a nap. And we'd come on to Cincinnati, where her sister had come prior to that and lived in the West End. The West End in Cincinnati is one of a couple of places I noticed as I thumbed through the Green Book looking for areas to visit. As I checked addresses against a map, I noticed they were spread out all over the city. This was so different from most places in the Green Book, which were usually concentrated around one or two streets in a black neighborhood. Why in Cincinnati were black businesses spread throughout the city? Well, Cincinnati, in my opinion, was, as my good friend calls it many times, up south. And in the South, we all had to live together. I was born in the South, so this I know. We, we were in one particular area. But once we got north of the Mason-Dixon line, we kind of spread out a little bit, and we lived where we could. Many other people came as domestic workers. Many of them came as automobile workers. The different factories, the different places where they could get employment, and they lived near those places. However, in Cincinnati, there were places that were as, I'll call it rough, as Alabama. There was a section of Cincinnati that had the General Motors plant. That's called Norwood. Norwood, at one time, you dare not let the sun catch you in Norwood. You know, when sun goes down? Oh, yes, it was like a sundown sundown. town. Yes, it was a sundown time. I mean, and and they knew it. And Redding, Ohio was a sundown town. Sharonville, Ohio was a sundown town. And yet they were only a mile and a half or two miles east of Lincoln Heights. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, from where we sit right now, if you would go out of the Freedom Center and turn and head west, one of the locations was there. This week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you would, it would be right there. There were locations. The Man's Hotel was there. That was in Walnut Hills, which was another section of Cincinnati. And uh, that's a path, too. That was along the Underground Railroad, an escape route. So the Man's Hotel was there. Uh, let's see, I have to think of all the places. The Sterling Hotel was down. That might have been Mount Auburn. Uh-huh. Was it quite The Sterling too- Hotel was in the West End. And it was on Mound Street. Mound Street, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And that's where Lena Horne and Elvis yep. Gerald and people like that would and, would and you'd see them. I mean, just right. like I'm looking at you. So it was it was exciting. But it was also uh, a welcoming refuge for people who would come in off the road. 
Like the Sterling Hotel was a hotel. It was not a hole in the wall. Uh, it was a substantive building, well taken care of, as was the manse where Duke Ellington and Basie and all those people stayed. We're going to take a break, but when we return, we'll hear about how our elders navigated what could be difficult, humiliating, and sometimes frightening situations. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Another insight that I gained from the story map of the elders is the confluence of self-discipline and determination. In almost every one of these stories, I feel that each of us can only understand what happened if we ask ourselves, what would I have done? Vanetta Shepard, now in her 80s and living in Detroit, recalls an incident as she and her family drove back to visit her parents in Little Rock, Arkansas. Let me tell you something really funny that happened. We'd bought a 1955 green Chevy. It had white wall tires and a white slash on the back. It was beautiful. And we got down to Little Rock and we stopped at the light. And this, we got caught in traffic, rather. And we stopped. And this lady, this old white lady, came up to the car and she looked and she said, them sniggers. And then she went back and she said, Trish. and she had tobacco in her mouth and she spit on the tire. She's Chained it at the tire, at the tire, and she said, "Niggas, get out of here." <laughs> <laughs> it was because it was a new car, and because we were black, and because she was just prejudiced. She didn't know any better, so I kind of up to her ignorance and, and moved on. And see, the Lord, when you have the Lord in your life, you learn how to look over ignorance. For Vanetta and her family, they had no choice; they just moved on, even in the face of such a hateful act. Not reacting or retaliating was necessary to keep yourself and your family safe. But it took an incredible amount of restraint in the face of fear. Hank Sanders, who you heard from at the top of this episode, recalls a time he had to confront his worst fears on the road and make difficult decisions that could put his life in danger. I went down in uh, southeast Alabama and I was at this meeting, and there was a white woman who worked with black people uh, at the meeting. And so when I got ready to leave, they asked me, uh, some of the black people asked me if I would drop her off at a town 20 miles up. The, the very first thing that crossed my mind 
I said, that's enough to get me killed. And, but I, I thought about it and I said, well, otherwise they got to drive 40 miles. They got to drive the 20 miles up there and the 20 miles back. And, and, and against my better, better judgment, I decided to go ahead and, and take her. And we hadn't got far out of town when this truck, the kind that you automatically know that they got guns in the rack on the back, uh, came up behind me. And it, it was dust dark. I uh, made sure that I didn't drive too fast or too slow. And the truck kept following me and it would get right up on me. So I, I would speed up and it would speed up. And then I'd slow down and it would slow down. And finally, when I slowed down enough, the, the truck pulled uh, up uh, uh, around me uh, on, on, the, on, on the side of me. And I just knew that we were going to get shot. And, uh, and then the truck pushed on ahead and, and, and drove on off. But then I was, uh, was concerned about even going further down the road, whether I should turn around. And so we just kept driving. But that fear is still so great because so much has happened there and nothing happened. I, but uh, I, it ran against the grain for me to not to want to take her, but it ran against the grain for me to want to take her. <laughs> Anytime we drove anywhere, uh, we were always uh, afraid. We, we never knew uh, when somebody might uh, stop us or pass by and shoot us. We, I mean, um, you were just always uh, afraid, and and you, you had to be careful even what service station you stopped at because you you never know if you stop at the wrong service station, even though you wasn't doing anything wrong, something would happen to you. What stories um, did you hear about things happening at service stations? Sometimes people would, you go in and you, you would, look at somebody the wrong way and and they would decide maybe that's a reason to kill you. It was there was a lot of fear uh here in Alabama. And Alabama wasn't the only state where you were afraid. And whenever in the sixties we'd drive to back and forth to New York, that was always a a terrible experience. But uh, Sometimes a bunch of us would do it anyway. One of the unexpected things I learned from the elders were the social connections that existed between blacks and whites, especially among blacks across state lines. Having connections to professional groups, benevolent organizations, and fraternal organizations like the Masons could sometimes protect you from harm. Here's Vanetta again talking about how the Masonic Order helped some of her relatives. My mother came to visit once, and they ran to an, uh, an altercation with some people. Gave me the wrong address to the cemetery. To the, they were trying to hit a highway, and they gave me an address to the cemetery. And the police rolled down behind them. Some people were down behind them. And my uncle and my, who was a mason? Uncle oh, D and, and Mr. Doja, yeah. My uncles were masons. So in those days, the Masonic Order was very strong in the South. If you were a mason, you threw a sign and they would let you go. And that helped them to save their life. And that has been through the years. It's not as prevalent now, though. 
So explain the situation. What happened and how did being a Mason save their lives? What exactly because happened? Because if you were a Mason, you had a certain sign that you threw. If you went to court, the judge was a Mason. The, the police were Masons. So they considered you their brother because you were there, you were a Mason. So they'd give you more leniency if you, than if you weren't a Mason. Carl and Joyce also recalled similar experiences. So the three of us, you're in your 80s. I'm not that far behind you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Grew up doing segregation in America. Mm-hmm. You had home economics teachers, physical mm-hmm. education teachers. Mm-hmm. You had black postmen. And mm-hmm. they'd go to these conferences in different cities. Mm-hmm. How did they know where to stay? Before the if they were Masons, they knew he headed up the Mason, uh, the lodge in the community they were going to. If they were Alphas, or if they were Omegas, uh, or if they were Baptists, or AME, or AMEZ, every one of these communities had and continued to have networks. And uh, it's like when I started out at Miami University here in Ohio, but I graduated uh, from Knoxville College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Dr. King spoke at my graduation, but Leon Render, Judge Loveless, all these all these <laughs> black conservatives who went to Knoxville College, if you came in on a Greyhound bus, Carl, get your girlfriend and go down to the bus station. There's a young lady I want you to look out for and see to it that she meets the right people. She's going to work at General Electric, Evendale, in three days. In the meantime, Marzella has to escort her. He didn't ask me. He's telling me what my girlfriend has to do. And that was universal. If, if you came to town, there are people here, whatever affiliation you come, whatever it was, if you went to Sunday school in a Pentecostal church, Bishop Bronson would be dead on it. Yep. And they'd take you into their home. Yes, yes. sir. And, and cook for you and right. feed oh, you. Yeah. And it was... And take you around the neighborhood and everything, yeah. It, That's it, real community. Um, it's about the relationships. It is. it is. And so the Green Book was really taking all of that network. Yes, and sir. Listening, you got listening it. It. Yeah. yeah. Putting it in one place, yeah. Yes. And, and making I, it available to people who didn't have those Who didn't have, yeah. Or who yeah. couldn't afford. Who couldn't afford it, the right. the Green Book like yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of these stories are in the past. But Vanetta made it clear to us that the conditions that enabled and perpetuated these stories remain today. I'm a realtor also, and mm-hmm. I went out to show my granddaughter and her husband. She's black, and he's mm-hmm. Polish. And they were looking at a house in Allen Park. So I got the address wrong, and as I drove, I stopped one place, and I looked at one right place, and I kept driving. And the police came down behind me and stopped me and said, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm a realtor. I'm looking for a house. And they said, you can't sell a house out here. And I said, oh, yes, I can sell houses out here. So I went through the whole story, and they said, I told him what address was looking for, and he said, well, that house belongs to a police officer, so we will follow you there, which they did. They followed me there, and I showed the house, and then they left. But that was last year. In listening to these stories, I remember a line from Dr. Martin Luther King, that the arc of the moral universe is long. Since Senator Hank Sanders had attended the famous march from Selma to Montgomery and had heard King inspire the crowd, I wondered what he thought about the arc of history as he has lived it. A final question for you. 
If Martin Luther King was standing on a podium today and asked, how long, <laughs> what would your answer be today? I would say, Dr. King, when you said that in 1965, I didn't know you were talking in biblical terms. <laughs> the biblical terms that can be centrist. I had no idea. I really didn't understand the depth of white supremacy. So uh, in 1966, when I was over in Lyons County trying to help people, I, I, I thought that five years would be enough that we could put in, the Voting Rights Act was going to be fully implemented, everything was going to be better, and uh, I just didn't know that Dr. King was talking in in biblical years. I, 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 I would say, Dr. King, I, I'm, I am deeply disappointed about the impact of white supremacy, but I would probably be more disappointed that many of the black people we have put in office uh, have not protected our rights, have not implemented justice. Um, and I, I would say, Dr. King, you you fought un, until until your life was taken. So I'm going to keep fighting. That's all for this episode of Driving the Green Book. Join us next week as we explore the emotional legacy that has been passed down from generation to generation and what artists and writers today are doing to continue the work of the Green Book. Special thanks to Joyce Coleman, Senator Hank Sanders, Vanetta Shepard, and Carl Westmoreland. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakemi Aladasui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast Vice President. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America.